Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending to cover in this audio, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Paul, in this section, talks about the collection of money that he's collecting from the Macedonian churches and from Corinth, as well as from Galatia and all the other places on his mission journeys that he that he traveled through collecting money to take back to Jerusalem to give to the saints in Jerusalem. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, he mentioned how he had met Titus, and he was so happy that the Corinthians had repented from all of their many sinful activities. And Paul talked about how joyful he was and how wonderful it was that that had happened. And so with that nice introduction, he now moves to chapter 8 to talk about raising money which, of course, you want to put people in a good mood to do that, and so he's already given them some lots of encouragement. In the last chapter, talking about how happy he was that they were flying right. So we start with Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. Now what Paul is doing here, he's, he is trying to tell them about how much money the Macedonian churches, which were Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, how much money they had raised, and this was, of course, going to excite them to jealousy and maybe make them want to compete with them and maybe want, maybe want, make the Corinthians want to at least match them and give more money. Now, Paul says that there was the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. He's referring to the grace of God which was exhibited to the churches and given to the churches so that they were able to give liberally. So he's talking about money, the grace of God that caused this monetary gift to be given Perhaps the grace of God made the gift big. Maybe the grace of God encouraged the Macedonians to to give the money to start with. Or maybe the grace of God made the Macedonian church so willing to give, to begin to give, or willing to give, or give a whole lot. Whatever it was, it was God's grace that caused this money to come forth from their poverty. Now, he calls it grace, the grace of God. He, he, well, of course, grace means gift, if you think about it. So he's talking about the grace of God, which led to the gift. He says in Second Corinthians 8, 6, which we'll get to in five verses, he says this, So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace. Translation is not the best here. Holman Christian Study Bible, NIV says this grace on your behalf. So what he's saying, he called, he called the gift. The whole gift was grace, was gift. The gift was grace. Now, Ellicott says that of the three Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, Philippi seems the most generous. He quotes four verses in Philippians 4, which talk a lot about money, my God, so I shall plow all your needs and all that, to show that the Philippians were probably most generous. But actually, Paul commends all the Macedonian churches equally in 2 Corinthians 9, 2, the next chapter. He says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you. He's talking to the Corinthians now, of which I boast about you, Corinthians, to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So he doesn't pick out Philippi, the church at Philippi or Thessalonica or Berea as, as being the most. So it's a speculation on Ellicott's part to say that Philippi was the most generous. Now notice that in verse 1, Paul mentions the churches of Macedonia to get the Corinthians in a giving mood. And now he mentions in 2 Corinthians 9, 2, the next chapter, he says that he's been telling the people of Macedonia about the Corinthians' willingness to give to encourage the Macedonians to give. So he's competing them against one another. We go to verse 2, 2 Corinthians 8. 
During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. Now the affliction is, quote, doubtless some persecution which was excited against them probably by the Jews, unquote, as Ellicott the commentator says. Their abundance of joy, of course, that came from the blessings of the gospel. They were joyous even though they were poor. The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, they were deeply poor and yet were full of joy. This shows that you can be poor and joyous at the same time. It's something that's hard for us in our materialistic culture to understand, but it really is true, although poverty is a terrible thing. By, by the way, I hadn't thought about this. This is a good verse for the prosperity message. Oh, really? They're poor, so that means they don't have enough faith and they haven't unlocked the secrets of the kingdom yet. But Paul says they were severely tested but, and they had an abundance of joy, even though they were poor. We go now to verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 8. I testify that on their own, this is Paul continuing, I testify, I, Paul, testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. The saints, of course, is the saints in Jerusalem, the poor saints. And notice that the Corinthians are begging for an opportunity to give. Now, that's fundraising in reverse, is it not? Instead of begging the donors to give, the donors are begging for an opportunity to give. Second Corinthians 8, 5, And not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves especially to the Lord, then to us by God's will. In other words, it's not just, just as they had given. They had not given money just as Paul has expected. He didn't expect a lot, I guess, because they were poor. But they gave themselves especially to the Lord, and then to us by God's will, which sounds like they gave more than Paul expected. And by doing that, they showed themselves they were giving themselves entirely over to the Lord. In other words, their generous giving showed that they were giving themselves completely to Jesus. They gave themselves especially to the Lord, Paul says. Second Corinthians 8.6 So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. And I don't like this translation. That's Holman Christian Study Bible. So let me give, let's go, I like the King James butter here. 2 Corinthians 8, 6. In so much that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Now the grace is referring, of course, to verse 1, the grace that the Macedonians had to give, which we mentioned already. And Paul is saying here, Titus would like to finish that, the grace that was started in the Macedonian church. Titus had been to Corinth earlier. Remember, he carried 1 Corinthians over there. And he probably was he, he was over there collecting the money, and then all the problems arose. And, well, before he carried 1 Corinthians over there, he had been over there earlier, and he realized there was all these kind of problems, and he came back and told Paul, he says, this is, this is a terrible mess we have here. But on, the all the problems in Corinth probably interrupted his collecting of money. Now, we'll see that the collections, Titus had done this about a year earlier, had started and had not finished because of all the problems. The letter was probably written in 55 A.D., 2 Corinthians, and so this is probably about 54 or so A.D. when Titus had begun the collection, and he quit because of the trouble. Because in verse 6 here, it says, just as he had begun, he had begun collecting, he would also finish. Finish what? Finish in you. Finish in Corinth, collecting that money, the same grace also. Now, there are two options that could be meant here by this phrase, finish in you the same grace also. Option number one, 
Paul wanted Titus to complete in Corinth the gift that was started in Macedonia, the same grace, the same gift that was started in Macedonia, option number one. Option number two, Paul wanted Titus to complete in Corinth the gift that was started in Corinth a year ago, to finish the grace. It's kind of a funny way to say it, finish the grace, but of course grace refers to the gift. He uses that phrase in verse one, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia, talking about the grace of God that impelled them to give. So the grace of God is referring to the to the grace to give money. And so this talking about the collection. So Paul wants Titus to finish the collection. I'm going to assume it's the collection that he started in Corinth a year ago, and he wants to finish it up. I just think that makes more sense, although it doesn't really matter. Now, Paul had already mentioned this earlier collection for the saints, this collection that he sent in Paul back to finish. Remember now, 2 Corinthians was written from somewhere in Macedonia. Titus had come to Macedonia telling Paul that the Corinthian church had repented of their sins and everything's hunky-dory now. So Paul sends Titus back to to Corinth with the letter of the 2 Corinthians. And also his job was, after he delivered that letter, he was to finish the poor collection, the collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem. That poor sec- poor collection was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now about the collection for the saints. You should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. It was not only from Corinth and Macedonia, Achaia and Macedonia, but also in Galatia that Paul was collecting money. Now, it is, Adam Clark says that this collection for the saints that Paul tells the, second Corinthians, that tells the Corinthians about in 1 Corinthians 16.1, this collection for the saints was probably believed to be done under the direction of Titus, As Adam Clark says, although Paul never specifically says it, we just speculate. Adam Clark speculates. 2 Corinthians 8.10, this is going to be four verses from where we are in 2 Corinthians 8. Now I am given an opinion on this because it is profitable for you who a year ago began not only to do something, but also to desire it. A year ago they had started this collection and got sidetracked. 2 Corinthians 9.2, for I know your eagerness and I brag about you to the Macedonians, Paul says. And this is how he brags to the Macedonians, quote, Achaia, that's Corinth, that's Greece, Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So this collection had started last year and had been interrupted. Now, one brief comment on the translation. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates it this way, so he should also, he, Titus, should also complete this grace to you. And I don't even know what that means, this grace to you, what does that mean? Well, the NIV has that Titus should complete this act of grace on your part. Well, that makes sense. In other words, finish in Corinth the collection that was started in Macedonia. Or it could be the finish in Corinth the collection started in Corinth last year. So, in other words, on your part, Corinthians, on your side, finish this act of grace. It's it's your turn now. The ESV has this act of grace. The J.P. Green Literal Translation has finished this grace to you, the way the Homo Christian Study Bible has it. So the Greek apparently is hard to translate. But I think that most of the commentators, everybody agrees that what this, he's talking about here is go ahead, go back to Corinth and finish the the minist- the gift collection, finish the collection that had already been started, either in Macedonia or Corinth. That might not be clear, but it, finish, the, finish the collection is what he's saying. We go now to verse 7, 2 Corinthians 8. Now as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace. Now you see the Corinthians are excelling in love for Paul. They finally accepted him after all the trouble they had caused him. Everything's hunky-dory. 
ever since Titus showed up somewhere in Macedonia to meet Paul and tell him that everything was all right. And Paul says, now look, since you excel in everything else, all these good things, excel more in this grace. What grace? Giving money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. As you excel in everything, faith. Now, Paul could be referring to what he had referred to in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, to another is given faith by the same Spirit. In other words, the Corinthians had a lot of faith, probably to do miracles and such. Now, as you excel in everything, speech. Now, that speech is probably, it could be doctrine. James Fawcett Brown denies that, and I think, I, I would deny it too. I think he's talking about prophetic words, words of wisdom and words of revelation. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, Paul says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance, the words, of wisdom, and to another the utterance, the words of knowledge. So there's your speech, there's your knowledge, utterance. It's talking about prophetic-type gifts, revelatory-type gifts. And you excel in that, Corinthians. You're good at that and all diligence and your love for us. But how about excel in giving some money? Paul, amongst other things, Paul is a good fundraiser. And remember, Paul never took up money for himself. But boy, when it was for other people like the poor saints in Jerusalem, he openly asked for money and he wasn't ashamed about it. 2 Corinthians 8.3, uh, 8.8. I am not saying this as a command, saying what? Give money, excel in giving money. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. Means of the diligence of others. He's talking about the people in Macedonia, who the brothers and sisters in Macedonia, who are giving a lot of money. And that's what I'm doing. I'm not commanding you to do it. I'm just holding up some competition to, so that I can test the genuineness of your love. Your love either for God or for me or for the Jerusalem saints. But I'm testing it. He openly says, I'm testing it testing it, putting it to the test. Paul really commanded his churches to do anything. He says, I'm not saying this is a command. That's not surprising. He never commanded the church, or at least if he did, it was very, very rare. Frank Vola's book, Rethinking the Wineskins, goes through and does basically a long Bible study of, the whole new, of all of the book of Acts and looks at the different Greek words that are used when Paul is trying to get the churches to do things, and it was exhort, I urge, but it wasn't command couple of examples, I think, but very few. You cannot command charity or generosity, the NIV Study Bible says. And this is what I say. However, you can put guilt trips on people, as often done today, and that's really terrible to make people feel guilty. If you don't give money, God's not going to love you anymore. There's nothing worse than that. Fundraisers like that ought to be slapped in the, in the, in the, in the face. No, there's no excuse for that. Make people feel guilty. Yeah, giving is a fun thing to do. It, God loves a cheerful giver and is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a wonderful thing to give, a joyous thing to give, to give properly. But to give because you feel bad because somebody's given more than you, which is what sounds like the Corinthians might have done if they watched the, the Macedonians, but that's not. So they were given out of their heart, given from joy, giving out of joy. But you never should give because some. Christian says that you need to give more to this ministry because, by golly, if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Paul says he's testing their love. Test to test means to prove or to show. So he says, I want you to show your love. Remember, love is action. It's not just emotion. In fact, it's primarily action. What you do for somebody, when you give money to somebody, you're loving them because you're doing something. You're not going over to the poor saints and saying, oh, brothers, you're so wonderful. We love you. We love you. We love you. No, they would give them money. Paul says, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. I said a minute ago that genuineness of the love could be the love for Paul or the love 
for God or for the love of the Jerusalem saints. Actually, if you look at the context, it's the love for Paul. Because if we go back to verse 7, we read this. You excel in everything, dot, 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 and in your love for us. He's talking about the love for us, the love for Paul, editorial we, love for Paul. And I'm testing the genuineness of your love for Paul in verse 8 to see if they're going to give money like they said they would. 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, you talk about a verse that's been misused by the prosperity message. I've heard this misused so many times years and years ago when I was in, in the charismatic movement, which was so unfortunately influenced by these folks. Not all charismatics were into this, of course, but there was enough to where I heard it. So that his poverty you might become rich. That rich is talking about spiritual riches. Now, it is interesting. Jesus' poverty, that's his physical, material poverty, led to our spiritual richness. Because Jesus wasn't spiritually poor. He was materially poor. So Jesus' material poverty led to our spiritual richness. He was rich. That means he, was, he wasn't rich in money, obviously. Jesus was not rich in money. But he was rich in spiritual knowledge and spiritual attributes, spiritual gifts, and all that. For your sake, he became poor. He was rich when he was in heaven and had all the prerogatives, divine prerogatives of his being as true God. But for your sake, he became poor by becoming a man, divesting himself of all those divine prerogatives or emptying himself, the kenosis, the emptying of himself, so that he could live a life down here, complete the requirements of the law, down the cross for our sins and make us rich because now we're adopted sons and daughters of Christ of God and we have our sins forgiven and so forth. We have the Holy Spirit living in us actually who's transforming us from glory to glory to glory. He called us, he predestined us and he's changing us from glory to glory. That's rich, that's richness. Now Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's probably referring to the times when he used grace in verses one and verse verse verses one and six in this chapter, Second Corinthians eight. Second Corinthians eight one he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. That's the grace to give money. Second Corinthians eight six, this is in the Montgomery New Testament translation, with the result that I've been begging Titus that as he had been the one to begin the work with you, so he should complete among you this grace also. This grace, which is unmerited favor from God, but it's in particular applied to giving money. Complete this grace, this gift of God, unmerited favor from God, to give money. All right, so Paul has started out using the Macedonians as a spur to the, to the Corinthians to give. Now he uses the example of Christ to give. The Macedonians were poor, they were deeply poor, and yet from the, out of their poverty flew much, grew much generosity. And now Jesus was poor because he was just a poor carpenter. He gave up all of his prerogatives in heaven. And he was materially poor too, actually, as as well as being a mere human as opposed to being God. But he did that. Why? So that he could make other people rich. He could give to the human race, those of the human race who believe in him. He could give them all kinds of spiritual inheritance. He could make them rich. So the Macedonians were poor and they were helping the Jerusalem saints materially. And Jesus was poor, but he's helping the church spiritually and so maybe you corinthians could take a lesson from those two examples and give to the jerusalem saints i mentioned that jesus had emptied himself 
that was the famous kenosis, the famous kenotic uh, verse is in Philippians 2, 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had become as a man in his external form, dot, 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 dot. How did he become poor? How did he empty himself? He was crucified as a common criminal. He was also not materially poor. As John Gill says, he had nothing to bequeath at his death but peace. Peace to those who believe in him. Now, Jesus died... Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. I've already said that it doesn't mean that he's going to make you rich in material goods. Not that there's anything wrong with having material goods. Not wrong, nothing wrong with being rich. But that is not why Jesus died. His spiritual riches, as John Gill affirms. Here's an example of spiritual riches that Paul has promised. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 22. So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Everything is yours. Talk about everything spiritual is yours. That means you're rich spiritually. And he repeats that word in the next verse, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours. Everything you need spiritually is yours. Meditate upon that one. Second Corinthians 8.10. Now I'm giving an opinion on this because it is profitable to you who a year ago began not only to do something, but also to desire it. To do something means to do something for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And in fact, you began it and you wanted to do it. You desired to do it. Now, Paul says, I'm giving an opinion on this. The opinion is you need to give money liberally. Now, an opinion is a lot less stronger than a command. Remember, Paul says, I'm not saying this is a command in verse 8. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. In other words, he's saying, I'm asking that you would give to match the giving of the Macedonians, you know, that's a common technique. You know, if, if if you will give money to this cause, this charity, some movie star will match whatever you give. That's a common technique. Now, some people have made a point on this. Paul's giving an opinion, so therefore he disclaims inspiration for the opinion. In other words, it's just my opinion, but my opinion doesn't matter. Uh, no, that's not what Paul means. Well, one way, one way you could argue that it has nothing to do with inspiration is that the Scripture... The the inspiration and inerrancy doesn't demand that every opinion of Paul is inerrant. He might be given an opinion, and his opinion is not not. He doesn't expect it to be followed as if his opinion was apostolic commands. And I've got no problem with that because the inspired and inerrant letter shows that truly that Paul had an opinion. It doesn't say that that God says that Paul's opinion is right. The Scripture doesn't say that. It just says that Paul is given an opinion, and that's true. He's given an opinion. There's no error there. So how does that make the scripture inerrant? Because Paul says, I'm giving an opinion. And of course, we know his opinion was perfectly reasonable and perfectly just. Sure, you should give money. Because it is profitable for you, it's profitable to give. Now, that seems counterintuitive, but it's often true, counterintuitive to the fleshly mind. But to the spiritual person who follows Jesus, you know that when you give give to God, give to the poor, give to widows and orphans, give to itinerant ministers, give to the spread of the gospel, give to whatever you give to, God honors that and he will give it back with abundance that's one thing the that's one thing the prosperity message actually had right you know all heresies have a grain of truth to it we got to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater because it is true the scriptures plainly teach give and it shall be given to you pressed down shaken together now paul says because if you will give and contribute to this poor collection for the saints in jerusalem it will be profitable for you the question is Profitable how? Spiritually or materially? Well, I think that Paul's talking spiritually here. But it could be you will profit materially 
Luke 6, 38, the verse I just quoted, I'll read it again. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, hey, give. It's going to be profitable to you. But you got to be so careful not to have your motive to give in order to get. Because once you learn that God gives money back, pretty soon you say, okay, God, I'm going to give some money. Can't wait to see you give me some money back. That's not the way it works. Sometimes you give money, then all of a sudden you lose a lot. God's not a genie. He's not magic. You You can't just say, I give this money, and bam, out back it comes. In general, when you give money and make a have a lifestyle of generosity, Jesus will bless you financially. That's just all he is to it. Second Corinthians eight eleven. But now finish the task as well. Finish the task of collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. That just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there may also be a completion for what you have. It's one thing to want to do something. You're eager you want to desire, that means you want to want it. In other words, Paul says, yeah, you've showed a lot of mental activity and volition and movement toward this worthy goal. But hey, let's complete that and let's get the money in hand. You can't spend desire. Those poor saints need actual money, actual shekels or drachmas or whatever they want to use. Finish the task so that there may also be a completion from what you have. The two cliches that can apply here, talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. Don't just talk. Don't just be eager to collect that money. Complete it. And he says there may be a completion for what you have. That means, as John Gill says, that there may be a, an, a, a completion according to your abilities, according to what you have. If you got a lot, give a lot. If you got a little, give a little. doesn't matter. You just give what you can. Paul didn't put a 10% on it, you notice. Now, if there was a place where Paul could have put tithes in, here would be where to do it. But he never does because tithing is an Old Testament law. It is never repeated for the New Testament church. I was speaking in Santo Domingo. I just stated to the group of pastors and other people who were sitting in the church there what I just told you. And my, all of a sudden I look over to see my translator. He's not there. He's down on the floor, crouched down in a defensive position with his hands over here, hands over his head, saying, incoming, incoming. It's kind of funny, you know, and we all started laughing because... All these pastors were quite upset that I said the tithing is not in the New Testament. But I'm telling you, it's not. But giving is. You know, you got a poor pastor. He's in a church, and he doesn't have any way to support his family. And he's given, and he is pastoring, shepherding the flock. Well, dadgummit, people need to give him money. Not as a salary. They need to give him money, not as a tithe. I mean, it could be, you know, a tithe limits you giving to 10%. A lot of people say, well, I gave 10%, I'm free. Maybe God wants you to give 20%. In fact, you will find that once people start... Giving is a joyous thing. They're going to give more than 10%. Tithing is a law. The law kills your desire to give. It becomes like a tax. You feel joyous when you fill out your tax returns and write the IRS a check. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians to finish the task. He'd already given them the mechanics of how to take up this offering in his last letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, he says this, Now about the collection for the saints. You should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So you see the collection is to be periodic, weekly, it's not uh, be, to be done when Paul the Apostle's there. It should already be collected, and it should be done with court in keeping with how you prosper. In other words, it should be proportional giving. The more you have, the more you give. Rich people are going to give more than poor Christians. We go now to Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. For if the eagerness is there, it is acceptable according to what one has, 
not according to what he does not have. And of course, here Paul states what I just stated, that you give according to what you have the ability to give from what you have, as he puts it in verse 11. According to what one has, he says in verse 12, not according to what one does not have. Now, the classic story that illustrates this principle is Jesus in Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. We read this. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. So absolutely, the rich people gave more than the poor woman. But proportionally, she gave more because she gave all of what she had. 100%, not 10%. We go now to Second Corinthians 8.13. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm not putting you to it to a lot of trouble here, Corinthians. The Corinthians could have thinking, well, yeah, we'll, we'll give a lot of money, but that means then the Corinthian churches won't have to give a lot. Or some others would not have to give. For example, it could be other churches participating in the collection like the Macedonians. They, the Corinthians would think, well, we're, we're making it easy for the Macedonians. They don't have to give as much now. Or it could be the church at Jerusalem. Paul is saying, it is not that there may be relief for the Jerusalem poor saints to put you in hardship. No, you're going to be all right. It's a question of equality. We help the poor saints in Jerusalem out, and you've got a surplus, and you're still not going to be poor, and then the Jerusalem saints won't be poor. You'll be equal. It could be that individuals are being referred to, as John Gill says. It is not that there may be relief for certain other individuals and hardship for you as a Christian church. Maybe referring to that Paul might be giving the money to individuals, maybe some individuals in Jerusalem, maybe. I don't know. I don't know why John Gill even mentions that. I think he's talking about the church in Jerusalem. It is not that there may be relief for the church in Jerusalem, but hardship for you in Corinth. But both of you are going to be equally sustained. Second Corinthians 8.14, At the present time, your surplus is available for their need. Your Corinthian surplus is available for their, the Jewish Christians, need. So their abundance may also become available for our needs, so there may be equality now. I don't know what Paul means about the Jerusalem church having an abundance. Maybe one day he says they get out of financial trouble, and sooner or later they'll have money, and maybe the Corinthian church will be in trouble, and so they'll give money back to the Corinthians. There was a particular need in Jerusalem. Remember, there was a famine in the first part of the 50s that affected the whole Roman Empire, and there was famine in Jerusalem, as John Gill points out. So they had a particular need. And the Corinthians had a surplus, because John Gill points out the church at Corinth was wealthy. Well, maybe those situations might be reversed sometime. Or it could be that it's the Jewish Christians' abundance abundance of spiritual things might become available for the Corinthian church. Maybe. Jameson Fawcett and Brown denies that. But there are others who quote this scripture who do believe that it's talking about a spiritual abundance from the Jerusalem churches available for the Corinthian church. Romans 15:27. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits and the Jews' spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs. So in other words, the Gentiles have money. They give it to the Jews who were the inheritors of the oracles of God. And then they will give spiritual faith. Spiritual things back to the Gentiles. Uh, Jameson Fawcett and Brown doesn't believe it's spiritual abundance that the Jerusalem Christians are going to give to the Corinthians, but it's material abundance. It's interesting. The idea that after the famine's over, the Jerusalem church is going to prosper and going to help out the 
church in Corinth, perhaps, or be 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 willing to and able to. Second Corinthians eight verse fifteen will finish up this audio as it has been written. The person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little. There's your case of financial equality there back in the times of the Exodus when the manna fell, because this is referring to that scripture in Exodus sixteen eighteen when the manna fell. Let me read that. When they measured it, the manna, by quartz, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. And so in the gathering of manna, this particular procedure was followed. The strong gathered a lot, the weak gathered a little, but the distribution of it was equal. Ooh, that sounds like communism. The excess of some ministered to the lack of others. Let me give you a quote from Adam Clark as to how it was done. Every man gathered as much manna as he could, and when he brought it home and measured it by the omer, for this was the measure for each man's eating, if he had a surplus, it went to the supply of some other family that had not been able to collect enough the family being large, and the time in which the manna might be gathered before the heat of the day not being sufficient to collect a supply for so numerous a household, several of whom might be so confined as not be able to collect for themselves. So the strong helped the weak. Now you say, aha, there you go, socialism. Well, first of all, socialism has never worked in practice in history. Why would it work here? Socialism is a farce. Look at Venezuela, look at China, look at Nazi Germany, look at Russia, look at California, look at Detroit, look at the French Revolution. Anywhere where you have collectivist economics, you have poverty, not to mention loss of personal freedom. But why is this equality of distribution of manna and also of money given for charity that Paul's talking about in the time of the Corinthians? Why are these two examples not socialism? Because it's all voluntary, folks. Socialism keeps people from saving by the use of government force. Here, it's God that keeps the people from hoarding up their manner and saving it for themselves and not helping the poor. God tells them to distribute it. I don't mind being under a government of God telling me what to do. I do mind being under a government where Nancy Pelosi tells me what to do. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. In our next audio, we will see Paul commending Titus from verse 16 to the end of the chapter in verse 24 and in the process we'll pick up a few details about how Paul practiced financial accountability as far as that poor offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this audio. I hope you stay tuned for the next one.